Welcome to the American Reformer Podcast, promoting a vigorous Christian approach to the cultural challenges of our day and rooted in the rich tradition of Protestant social and political thought. Hosted by Josh Abitoy and Ben Dunson. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the American Reformer podcast. I'm Ben Dunson, the editor-in-chief of American Reformer, and with me is Josh Abitoy, who is the executive director of American Reformer. This week, we are going to talk all things immigration, if I guess you could call it immigration, what's happening right now on our southern border. Um, That's probably really not the best word. Uh, We should maybe perhaps describe invasion. That might be a a better word. Uh, We're seeing hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people uh, streaming across our southern border. And there doesn't appear to be uh, anyone running the ship as far as what to do about that. Uh, there, there's some uh, some movement in Texas where we are from from our governor to to at least uh, try to do something about that, but um, not sure how how successful that is going to be. So we're going to be talking about all these things. Um, you know, what what should we think about this as as Christians uh, about um, all these people coming into the country about uh, immigration, illegal, legal. Um, the nation state, the, the sovereignty of the nation state, um, the nation and the individual states and how they deal with all this and, and much more. So you're in for uh, quite the, the wide ranging discussion this week. Um, Josh, how about you just set the, the general uh, sense for what's happening here for us? Yeah. Um, so some Trump era policies actually rolled off the book last week. And um, while they were... Um, that that had been scheduled, and while they were sort of pending to roll off the books, a lot of immigrants started amassing on the border in anticipation of those regulations rolling off. Um, and uh, you know, I'm looking at news reports. You know, they, they're talking. You know, Matamoros, one one border town, reports ten thousand immigrants. Different different cities, kind of along the Texas Mexico border, had um, groups sort of piling up, uh, getting ready to to make a crossing. And these are not just uh, oftentimes they're not just Mexican nationals. Um, it's Central and South America, uh, Venezuelans, uh, Salvadorians, any anyone coming from a um, you know a country with any political trouble or just seeking an opportunity for economic advancement. And then there's been reports of uh, also Africans and Middle Easterners uh, amassing at this border as well. Uh, in fact, in, in San Diego last week, uh, a, an individual Middle Eastern uh, terrorist who's on terrorist watch lists was was apprehended making a crossing in the San Diego, California area. So it's this is at scale. Um, it's in direct response to federal policy uh, and decisions made by the Biden administration to uh, roll back Trump era regulation. And uh, it's at a scale where we frankly have no idea who's crossing. We don't know these individuals. Um, we don't, you know, we, we, it's, it's a severe, it's both a security threat and then also a, um, it's exacerbating the social problem. And uh, of course, 
we have this whole array of immigration law in the States. Once a person has, has kind of crossed the border, even if they're apprehended by border patrol or, or whatever, um, they now cannot be deported unless they go through sort of a raft of hearings and they have all these sorts of procedural rights. So, you know, it, it takes a serious devotion of resources to kind of run the gamut on the procedure that is, uh, that has been held to be um, the right of somebody who makes an illegal crossing. Uh, you know, when you're talking, when you're talking a uh, million, two million people crossing the border every year, you know, and then you think you've got to deport each one. And for each one, you've got to do the equivalent of a criminal case, you know, consider the devotion of resources there. I mean, you've got, you know, that would, if you actually really wanted to do deportations on all these numbers, you'd have to have a judge to hear each individual, each case would have to be individually litigated and through multiple layers, right? They have, they have rights of appeal and, um, you know, they would be um, entitled to a defense and, you know, all of this. I mean, if you just, if you think through the, 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 the books we have, the laws we have on the books are um, just woefully inadequate for actually effectively dealing with a scenario where you've got one or 2 million people crossing your border every year. Yeah. So, so there's a lot of details that we're going to get into uh, related to all of that. There's, there's laws that have been passed. Um, there are Supreme Court cases that have come down that have uh, impinged on all of this. Um, there's, there's just uh, trying to figure out what individual states should do, what we should do as a nation. Uh, we're going to get into all of that. Um, first, though, there's, there's some higher level issues that, uh, that we need to deal with as, as Christians. This is an area where there, there's a lot of confusion among Christians, among evangelical Christians, um, about the, the very idea of immigration and things. And, and, and one of those is just simply, and this is foundational, is there's actually a lot of confusion about the very concept of the nation state. Um, there, there is in, in the last several hundred years, there's been this movement in general in Western society to erase the, the concept of the nation, um, the kind of liberal internationalism where, um, where the idea of distinct nations has increasingly been seen as uh, a threat to stability and security and prosperity in the world. Everyone can point to obviously the bad examples of, of nationalism, uh, Nazi Germany or whatever, and then they say, well, this is just what it means to be a nation. Um, a lot of Christians, um, and in particular in the evangelical world, they, um, you know, they, they see various biblical texts and they, they think, okay, in general, the church is universal. It's made up of people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. So if the church is universal, why, why, shouldn't, why shouldn't we just see our nation as, uh, as a, a place where everyone can come in who wants to be in? Um, why shouldn't we value that as Christians? And maybe it's even a great opportunity for evangelism, all these people from all over the world coming in. Um, and of course, I mean, there's there's a, a sense in which if, if people from the nations are coming to us, uh, yeah, sure, we're going to we're going to preach the gospel to them as Christians. And, and we do want to see people converted from from all the nations of the world. But the, the nation itself is honestly, it's just something that the Bible takes for granted. Um, that there are such things as distinct nations, 
um, that those nations are responsible to God for how they act. Even the pagan nations are are held to account, not not to the same standard as Israel, because Israel has these distinct laws that they don't have. But but the nations of the world are are responsible to God. You know, they're they're a distinct thing, um, and really, I think that the Bible just takes that for granted. Um, in much the same way that it takes the family for granted, uh, you know, probably a, a good example that we could use is the family. Is it is it the case that I, as a Christian, um, and I have a wife and children, and I have a house, um, because I am a part of the universal church, do I have a responsibility to, let's say, for example, allow every Christian in my city even in my neighborhood, for, for that matter, to, to come into my house and to make a home in my house, you know, to, to eat my food, to maybe even become my children. Um, maybe I have a moral responsibility to, to adopt them into my family if they desire um, that to be the case. You know, if you, if, you, if you put it in those terms, I think most people would recognize that, that that's absurd. But for some reason, when we go to the nation state, we, we have this, this sense of, well, yeah, we're Christians. We, we, we have to let everyone in. Um, we, we need to let them all in because um, that's valuing the universal church and, and we're all brothers and sisters in Christ and, and so on. Um, you know, th- there's also this idea that, that people are saying, well, if you're going to say nations are good things, you know, show me the Bible verse. You know, show me the verse that says uh, a nation's a good thing and, and you can exclude people from your nation um, and uh, you can have immigration restrictions and, and so on. You know, you're not going to find that because the Bible's not written for that purpose. And yet at the same time, um, it's, you know, it's kind of this basic sanctified common sense that just like I cannot take care of my family, a nation cannot take care of itself. It can't have law and order. It can't have national cohesion, national prosperity, if it's not able to decide who gets to be a, a citizen, who gets to be someone who lives in that nation. And, uh, and that seems to be something that Christians really struggle with uh, today, I think. Um, Josh, I mean, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, Ben, isn't there a Bible verse that says we have to treat sojourners kindly? I mean, how do you right, know, right? They're, they're what do you think of that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, uh, you, you got to think about the ch- the change situation um, with Israel for sure. Um, that um, you know, the idea of strict national boundaries was uh, perhaps not um, on their radar back then. Uh, there were people passing through in various ways. I mean, even today, we as Christians have we have a moral responsibility toward people who are in our country, even if they're here illegally. I mean, I can't just walk up to someone who is illegal and like start beating them because they're here illegally. Um, and I think that's what the, the Old Testament is getting at is um, you, you have a certain moral responsibility towards all people. But um, the idea that somehow that means that you have no right as a nation to determine um, to determine your borders, to determine who can be a citizen. It's just, it's such a stretch to try to, um, <laughs> to, yeah. to get there from that. 
Yeah, agreed. If I if I hear that verse used one more time in the context of a Christian leader talking about immigration, I'm going to have an aneurysm because it's all question begging, right? I mean, it, like it, the the you know, like obviously there's circumstances and cases around uh, how does a person come to be a sojourner to begin with, right? I mean, that, that to some extent that means a person who's been welcomed into your community right. to visit and. Um, that invitation isn't open. There's obviously some grounds on which you would deny entry. Um, and that could depend on the, both on the, uh, sojourner themselves, the would be sojourner. And it could also depend on internal conditions in your nation. And, you know, it, to, to act as if, you know, that, uh, verse uh, somehow gives us our, you know, basic guidance on immigration policy is, is absurd. Um, but you know, yet, uh, you know, leading evangelicals, with and this is this is now proven in reporting, but you know, with Soros funding, um, have uh, you know set up roundtables and you know the absurdity. You know, Russell Moore at the ERLC is is participating in in immigration roundtables, advocating for mass amnesty and and other sort of uh, soft on the border policies. Um, so this is this this sort of thinking, terrible thinking is very endemic among a certain portion of the evangelical leadership class. Um, yeah, there's, there's, um, you, you said something there, um, with, um, that, that idea of welcoming them in, mm-hmm. um, which I think that that's so key with, with regard to sojourners, um, uh, because it, it, it's, there's, the, there is, you're exactly right. There's this assumption that if people want to be here, they have a right to be here. Right. Um, ra- rather than this idea that just as you welcome people into your home, but that's your prerogative, um, that you welcome people into your country, but that doesn't mean that they, you know, that they are absolutely free. It made me think of something that Aquinas says in in the, in the Summa Theologica, um, which <laughs> this is like the most politically incorrect thing you could even imagine, I, I suppose, today, mm-hmm. sadly, uh, because he, he says... He says um, that if if a uh, a foreigner and he was actually he was using the example of um, even of of Israel um, uh, themselves um, that um, he says that if any foreigner wished to be admitted entirely to their fellowship and mode of worship he said that a certain order was observed for they were not at once admitted to citizenship, just as it was law that some nations that no one was deemed a citizen except after two or three generations, as Aristotle says. And then he he says, the reason for this was that if foreigners were allowed to meddle with the affairs of a nation, as soon as they settled down in its midst, midst, many dangers might occur, since the foreigners not yet having the common good firmly at heart might attempt something hurtful to the people. Um, I, th- I think it's just so well put is that there are basic conditions upon which it must be the case before you can you can fully welcome someone into uh, your your nation as a citizen. And, and most fundamentally is, are they going to come into your nation and be integrated into your nation and and seek the good of your nation um, and submit to the laws of your nation and, and so on? You don't just let anyone in or you would literally undermine the very fabric of society. Yeah. And, and maybe now we can, you know, uh, 
I, I, we've established that, you know, there are these like sort of basic conditions. Societies have a right to gatekeep. And then I think moving a little bit closer to the American context, I think we have to say that the, the prudential matter is partly like, what's your form of government? What's your political tradition? And how does immigration fit into that? Um, and, uh, you know, immigration, like in the context of an empire, is a much more manageable, maybe even a, a preferable condition. I mean, you want an empire wants a very large population. It's definitionally a political unit that sits over a multi-ethnic, multilinguistic group. Um, the cohesion of the various groups within the empire doesn't really matter so much. I mean, all of the various ethnic or cultural groupings under that political body, um, you know, they need to have relative harmony as between them, but they don't need high like social cohesion and trust. And really the thing that holds it all together is the empire gives these particular groupings value, maybe security, um, you know, keeps the roads maintained, uh, levies taxes to have armies that, that protect from outside threats. Um, you know, but but in that scenario, immigration is a much more, um, yeah, it's a it's a manageable issue, and in many conditions, it could even be favorable. Like you might want, uh, you know, Rome did this a lot, right? They accepted a lot of immigration um, to you know have low wage workforce, and you know, in certain town, you know, certain areas and things like that. Um, and we see, uh, so, so when we see modern pundits. Um, calling for 1 billion Americans, and there's a lot of them. Um, we should be trained to partly here in that call, a call for America to actually operate more like an empire because, you know, you, you need actually authoritarian centralized rule uh, to govern well over an extremely uh, multicultural uh, political unit. Um, you know, and, and the reason for that is, you know, the, the alternative to that is, um, you know, is, is Republican governance, like what we were founded with and what we still have vestiges of today. And Republican governance depends upon a lot of um, norms that aren't necessarily enforced at the, you know, at the tip of a sword, um, but they're, they're sort of expectations that people are going to behave with reciprocity. Think about our Senate and how our Senate has all of these norms that they've established over the years about um, requiring a degree of bipartisanship in their proceedings, you know, requiring, um, you know, uh, certain majority, super majorities over 51 percent in order to pass certain types of legislation or make judicial appointments, um, allowing the filibuster in certain conditions. All of those are, are like you know, norms, um, or even go down to, you know, that's at the Senate federal level, go all the way down to the lowest level of society, like jury, you know, I mean, we've, we've had it hardwired into our society that, you know, all things being equal, we're going to get the best results when 12 random citizens get to vote on the outcome of a case. Like that's not, that's not a common arrangement globally. Um, you know, most European countries have an yeah. inquisitorial system where the judge makes a lot of the calls. And that's a very distinctly English tradition that was cultivated and developed over time when you were five or six years old and you first started getting your lessons about civics. You know, you were taught about what it meant to serve on a jury and what the rule of law meant. And, and 
you know, so, so all throughout our society, we've got these vestiges and, you know, features of Republican governance, and they all depend upon civic virtue amongst, amongst the citizens. This means having a, a group of citizens who understand, you know, not just that they have rights, that the government owes them, but they owe duties to, to their society. And they take that seriously and they think about it, they exercise it well. Um, you know, our civic virtue is not, I don't, it correlates with moral virtue, but it's a distinct thing. Like it, it's, it's talking about the virtues that make a people group good citizens of a republic. And we have to say on that metric, like at our founding, our civic virtues were off the charts. I mean, we were, even while we were still colonies, we were functioning like little republics. Um, you know, we had little platoons of society. Oftentimes the pastor was the community leader uh, leading these things. And people, um, people felt a lot of responsibility and skin in the game for their government. It wasn't so much that we have a government. It was we are the government, right? Every, every citizen has a vested interest and, and partial responsibility over the direction of the political body. Like that's a great political system. I think it's the best one in the world if you have the social conditions necessary to sustain it. But we have to be realistic and say um, not everybody globally uh, has the prerequisite civic virtue to sustain that sort of republic. Uh, we know that. I mean, we know this. Like when you, you know, if you have mass immigration from, you know, Mexico or Venezuela, part of what happens is your social conditions become a bit more like uh, the place, you know, from which your immigrants are coming. Um, and not all countries, there will be some countries where assimilation is, is easier than others, depending on, you know, myriad of factors, culture, civic tradition, all of that. So um, wait a second, are you, are you suggesting that some nations are run better than others? Yeah, and I'm even suggesting that some nations have better cultures than others. Right, well... I, I I don't know if we're we're not allowed to say that today, are we? <laughs> I'm sorry. I hope I, I scandalized you. Yeah, I know. You know, Trump Trump put it uh, of course characteristically very you know crudely. He called these countries um, I'll say crap hole countries euphemistically. <laughs> uh, you know, but I mean this is this is a basic. We we kind of know this instinctually, right? Like. <laughs> yes, I mean some countries. It's quite obvious that um, they are essentially anarchic. And no, yeah. no one's trying to sneak across their borders and, and, and find a, a life for themselves there. I mean, <laughs> uh, right. I mean, there's a lot of like, look at Europe, Europe, you know, um, Germany and Sweden, they, I mean, there's a lot of Afghanis and Pakistanis who want to come to Europe and seek a better life for themselves and their families. And, you know, maybe there's some respects in which they bring a set of values that are better than current European values. I'm sure that's the case in some areas. But they also bring like very different social attitudes about, for example, sexual harassment. And, you know, so when you do that, you you import, um, you know, you import you import those attitudes, you import, uh, you know, those those conditions. And, um, you know, so, so of course, um, you think there's differences in the way that, you know, in nations cultures, you, of course, you think yours is yours is best, or at least is best for your people. Um, and so any, I would think, prudent ruler would sort of say, um, especially a republic would sort of say, all right, there need to be prudential limits on the 
extent of immigration? How many do we take? And we also need to be looking at, like, are we doing a good job assimilating people to our values? Um, and if we're not, uh, we need to shut immigration down. We need to severely restrict it. Yeah, I mean, we've got um, a situation now where the the uh, the kind of imperial situation that you described where if you're letting all of these different groups uh, live in one place together, you've got to have a pretty uh, tight control over everything, essentially authoritarianism in a, in a way. Um, but we've got the all of the immigrants coming in and we have the people at the top of our government saying, let them all in, but there's not the desire, the corresponding desire to have tight control um, over all of this. And so it's, it's like the worst of both worlds. Um, let everyone in. Who cares if they're assimilated? Who cares if they want to be a part of your nation and, and to seek its welfare? Um, and we're not going to try to make them do that either. We're not going to try to assimilate them. It's just, uh, well, I don't know. I, I, I don't know, honestly. What, what is the end game? I mean, I, I have views on that, and our listeners are going to accuse me of being a conspiracy theorist. Well, see, see I'm, I'm very much – like I, I'm – it's very hard to get me to believe a conspiracy, and, and, and I really don't think it's a conspiracy. I honestly think it's just like utter foolishness, like just total stupidity. Um, I mean it, it's the basic ideology that is, is, is opposed to distinct nation states – and, um, I, well, I guess the cynic in me, it would say that they really do. A lot of our elites really do like all of the low wage labor, um, that comes in and they won't admit that because, you know, they're supposed to hate capitalism and all that. They, 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 they love the low wage labor and, and the, the prosperity that that creates for them. Um, I think it's explicable by like incentives and interests, um, so it's not really a – maybe it's not a bona fide conspiracy theory, but um, I think there's a growing class of people who really truly do conceive of themselves as citizens of the world. Um, they think uh, – these are typically high earners, um, people at, at the tops of major corporations that straddle national borders across the world and in many cases are more powerful than a lot of sovereign nations – and, you know, they, they don't like put it this way. If, you know, if, if next week the U S got really restrictive, um, on Google with like regulations or something like that, all of the senior management and all of that whole team, they can just pick up and move operations to a different, you know, different country. They can re-domicile. <clears throat> if you're, once you're at a certain, um, economic class, or corporate class, um, you know, you can go to from New York to London to Paris, you know, to Singapore, and it's it, everything kind of feels the same. I mean, you're speaking in English generally in all those different places, and you are, um, you know, you're around people with who went to similar schools and have similar uh, backgrounds and track records, and you're, you're part of, you know, there's there's a there's very much like an international um, corporate moneyed class that feels more at home with itself than it does with the people from their particular nations. And so, 
and, and then, you know, and then you look at the really, you know, the, the major finance or, you know, very rich, um, typically European uh, financiers, um, you know, the people connected with the World Economic Forum. These are social circles where um, they really do want, uh, they, they do view, uh, they, they want to be on the top and they have sovereign nations that come to the WEF and places like that and receive direction from them. And, and, and to them, you know, rigorous uh, muscular nation states are threats to their influence. Um, and so, yeah, I, th- I think, you know, and, and tying it all together, mass immigration significantly uh, undercuts national solidarity um, in a way that makes people less patriotic and, you know, has them, it results in them feeling less attachment to their particular nation because you're essentially making every nation the same. Yeah. And that, and that's good for the global elite set. Right. Um, that's significantly less good for normal middle-class people. And um, it's probably not actually uh, amazing for, for even um, the lower class uh, folk um, I, you know, I think for a lot of the, the people that come across the border illegally, life is probably going to get somewhat better for them than it was or else they wouldn't be doing this. Yep. Um, but for, for, for most of the, the, the kind of vast middle of, of the nation, that's really not good for them. I mean, we, we know this right now, the, the, the southern border in Texas is, is, a, is a disaster. I mean, just... Um, the, the violence and and uh, and the drugs and human trafficking, sex trafficking, it's amazing. We're 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 you've got all these people on the left that I presumably would be very um, you know uh, concerned about things like sex trafficking, but they're they're not. Um, uh, I guess it's just the price to pay to to allow this to happen. Um, so a lot of us normal people are going to suffer from this. Um, but the people at the top who can hire private security, uh, who can live in secure neighborhoods and, and things like that, they're, they're probably, well, they're going to benefit from this and they're going to be fine. Yeah. I mean, people, people call this yeah, jokingly, the, or not jokingly, but the Brazilification of America. And they mean something very particular, like to your point, Ben, uh, Brazil is very dangerous. There's large sort of underclasses, a lot of crime. The wealthy there, they do okay, but they have to pay to they they pay to buy safety. They live behind, you know, they have walls and gates around their houses. Some of them hire private security. Um, they get, you know, their their BMWs come standard with bulletproof glass. You know, um, yeah. And uh, yeah, I think I think if uh, things don't change, we're heading there. Um, well, so that, that makes a good transition. Like if things don't change, um, you know, we wanted to talk about some of the, the really concrete things that, that we need to think about and, and, um, and, and what's going on. Uh, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of court cases, a lot of issues with the Supreme Court and, and, um, and our Congress and laws they've passed. Do you want to get us into some of that? Yeah, and I don't know. You know, I'm uh, I'm looking at our show run here. I don't have time to get into all of it, but maybe I can at least kind of tease these topics, and I, I think maybe write about it or revisit it in a subsequent podcast. But um, 
You know, in uh, in 2010, Arizona passed a slate of laws because the federal government was failing at its job to protect the borders like they have been for 40 years. And Arizona passed like laws that said stuff like, um, you know, they made it an, a misdemeanor to enter Arizona as an illegal immigrant. And, you know, what this did was it gave Arizona the ability to detain illegal immigrants uh, with state law enforcement. Um, they had some other stuff as well, but that that was sort of the main the main law. And in, in this course was this case was immediately litigated, goes up to the Supreme Court and gets uh, gets uh, the Arizona laws are struck down um, on the logic that because Congress has has regulated immigration, this is a matter that sort of originally belongs to the federal government in jurisdiction. Congress passed a lot of uh, legislation about the issue. Uh, they said that this um, basically this constituted field preemption. This is a constitutional doctrine, but the idea is the federal government has adopted comprehensive regulation and for the state to have any regulation um, under, undermines and conflicts with the federal scheme. And so it has to be thrown out. Scalia, uh, the great the great one, uh, had a wonderful dissent in that where he talks about basic stuff. The states are sovereigns and the, the right to have some say over who enters their territory is an, is an inherent uh, characteristic of sovereignty. And unless the Constitution explicitly says they can't, uh, they actually ought to be considered to have that power. Um, this mm-hmm. is a debate that was happening 11 years ago. The Supreme Court's changed a lot since then. I don't see anybody on the right. I don't see Abbott, anybody doing any like aggressive state level legislation or enforcement that would even kind of push back the holding of uh, U.S. v. Arizona, that case. they That needs to be on the chopping block. That needs to be a target. You know, this is what states do all the time, right? They start passing incremental legislation that gets challenged in court and incrementally uh, pushes back on bad law from the Supreme Court. And this is not, it's not really happening much with the US v. Arizona. And I think it 100% needs to be a target. Um, and it coheres well. I mean, really, Scalia's dissent in that opinion. I wish every governor in the country would read and internalize what Scalia says there and start to reconceive of themselves. Remember, I'm the governor of a state. The state is a sovereign. What does that mean? Um, you know, Greg Abbott, if you're listening, go read Scalia's dissent in U.S. v. Arizona right now. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. th- there's a lot to this, uh, more than we can get into today. But I, I want to tease it and revisit it um, because there's a lot of levers that our governors are not pulling that they should be pulling on this issue. Yeah. So so we've been, we've been able to talk a bit more uh, theoretically about these issues this time, and and that'll that'll give us a, a chance in in future episode to come back and and get more into those kind of details about you know what a state actually can do, um, what individual states can do uh, besides just uh, putting a bandaid on it or just um, you know doing some stuff to to pose before the cameras to be seen as as doing something. So we'll we'll come back and and revisit that in in the future um well that's probably a good good place to uh to close for today um we thank you for listening hope this has been uh profitable for you we'd uh, ask to uh have you 
give us a rating. Um, go on Podbeam or Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Uh, give us a rating if you liked our, our podcast. It helps get us out there. And until next time, we will see you all later. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening to the American Reformer podcast. Make sure to visit us online at AmericanReformer.org. That's AmericanReformer.org. You can also follow us on Facebook and on Twitter at AMReformer.